0: Let me tell you a story. Podcast number sixty-six.
1: It was the best of times. It was the worst of
2: times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years it ago, was the age of never mind It is a truth
1: universally acknowledged. No. You don't know about she me without you. you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with your hosts Steve and Becky Lyles. Settle back into your seat. Step onto your favorite fitness machine or a lace up your walking shoes and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors.
0: Hi, this is Steve.
2: Hi, this is Becky. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story. We're going to do something a bit different in this podcast. The Community Paper of San Diego, California has given us permission to read a true story that happened 20 years ago titled The Blind Hill. Steve will start us off with that account, and then I'll read from Patrick Craig's YA mystery, called The Mystery of Ghost Dancer Ranch, The Adventures of Pumpkin and Boo,
0: Volume 1. I met Mike about six months ago. I didn't know he was a volunteer fireman until last week. We found ourselves with some time to kill, and we began to talk. Somehow the conversation turned towards auto accidents. He said that although he'd been on many emergency runs to car wrecks, he'd never been in a serious one himself. I told him I had and that he wasn't missing anything. It was a bad joke. Mike continued, At last count, he had been on the scene of 37 fatal accidents. I stopped and let that soak in for a while. It explained a few things about the fellow one being his utter hatred for anyone who would dare drink and drive. I could see how nearly 40 fatal accidents would make a guy that way. He told me about things he'd seen personally that would give me nightmares for years. I've happened across a few accidents, some involving cars, some not. I always tried to help if I could, and managed to concentrate long enough to make a difference a couple of times. But I always got the jitters later, I marvel at the men and women who can do this all the time, knowing when the next call comes in, they'll have to go out and experience it all again. I'm thankful that there are people like that, but I'm not one of them. He described several of the terrible accidents and explained the techniques that professionals use to extract accident victims and start immediate medical care. The golden hour starts at the moment of impact, and every second counts. Mike spoke with well-deserved pride about his crew and the equipment, training, and dedication that they bring to bear in the fight against death itself. Surprisingly often, they win, but other times, nothing within the power of human beings is nearly enough. As he spoke, I could tell that one part of the job haunted him despite his best efforts to hide it. He was a father of three. His oldest son was driving now, and When he'd mentioned a wreck involving kids, he'd seen a few. A dark look crossed his face. I quietly told him that my boys were just starting to drive too. Like all teenagers, they think they're invincible. He looked up sharply. Let me tell you, they're not. He loaded enough of them on the backboards, crying for their parents to know better. He paused for quite a while, then blinked a few times. You know, you do a job like this and you think you've seen it all. You can't think of it as anything but a job. Otherwise, it'll eat you alive. You just have to let it roll off, man. But there was this one wreck where we were called to. This one wreck. And his voice and expression both changed. I'm quite sure he wasn't aware of it. Part of him was already somewhere else. Another place. Another very bad day. Two families were leaving a house, all of them going to a social event at the local high school. The parents and kids from both families were all longtime friends. Just so they could continue their conversations, it was decided that the parents would all go in one car, the kids in another. A 17-year-old boy was driving the younger folks. Everyone in the little rural community where they lived knew the boy, He was a good kid, all agreed, had a good head on his shoulders. The other parents were confident in his driving. The two cars left the driveway and the teenager took the lead. His parents and his friend's parents fell in behind them on the highway. They had a few miles to go before they got to the school. The weather was good. The roads were dry. About four miles south of the small town where the school was located, there was what was known locally as a bad hill. You can find a deadly spot like this in almost every county in the nation. It's where a combination of hills, curves, or poor road design all come together to make driving suddenly, unexpectedly hazardous. They're easy to spot by the multiple skid marks in the asphalt. The kids were northbound approaching the hill. The parents were a couple of blocks behind. No cars were in between them on the lonely stretch of highway. Some said later that the boy might have been going a little too fast. Some said he wasn't. It was never proven either way. From behind, the father driving the second car saw his boy top the hill. As soon as the teenager reached the peak, his dad saw his brake lights come on suddenly. Then the car dipped over the other side of the hill and was lost from view. At the bottom of the steep hill was a crossroads. A 65-foot semi-tractor trailer had stopped at the intersection. The driver carefully looked both ways and, seeing nothing, dropped into low and began to pull out onto the highway. He was blocking both sides of the road when the kid topped the hill. The trailer was heavily loaded and the driver had no speed built up yet. He gunned the engine for all it was worth, trying to get out of the way. The seventeen-year-old driver looked down the hill and all he could see was a wall of steel and iron in front of him. He slammed the brake pedal and fought the wheel, looking frantically for a lane, a ditch, any place he could aim the car. There was nowhere to go. The massive trailer, still swinging out from the crossroads, had blocked everything. The boy fought it all the way in. The car containing the parents had slowed down a little, The father driving knew his son had seen something from the hilltop. He backed off a few miles per hour. It was enough to make the difference for them. But when the second car came to the top of the hill, four horrified parents looked down to see the road blocked by a huge semi and the car containing their children, all of their children, skidding towards the truck, blue clouds of smoke rolling out from under the locked tires. There wasn't even enough time to scream. The boy's car slammed into the middle of the trailer and seemed to explode. Big chunks of sheet metal and glass flew in all directions, and the parents saw every bit of it. Mike was on duty that day at the firehouse. An alarm went off, and his crew grabbed their personal gear and leaped aboard their assigned vehicle, truck 4. The initial report was that a truck driver out on the South Highway had made a garbled and half-hysterical call over his CB radio. He'd had enough presence of mind to switch to Channel 9, the National Emergency Channel, for the citizen's band frequency. Most county sheriff's departments monitor Channel 9, and there's a dedicated band of radio enthusiasts known as React who assist them monitoring the band for whatever emergency message that might be broadcast. The trucker's plea for help was picked up and the authorities called. The sheriff had two cars en route and called the fire department. Over the police net, an Indiana State trooper reported he was close to the scene and responding, too. The emergency room of the county hospital was notified, alerted to stand by for trauma victims. No word on their condition yet. Within minutes of the wreck, a score of professionals were already in action. Not a bad showing for a community of that size. Mike was just picking up speed in the big fire truck when a call came over the radio. Truck 4, what's your ten twenty? Mike gave his location. The caller was one of the deputies responding to the accident. Mike had known him for years. The deputy called back. I'll hit the highway about a half mile ahead of you. I'll give you an escort for... A second report came over the frequency. Apparently, the trucker rallied long enough to give them what information he could. It was nothing any of them wanted to hear. Broadside into a semi. Carload of kids. Looks like a bad one. Ahead, Mike saw the deputy roar onto the highway and burn rubber in the southbound lane. With his friend clearing the way with a flying wedge of lights and sirens, Mike held the truck's accelerator firmly to the floor. It was imperative that his rig got on scene as fast as humanly possible. Truck 4 carried the all-important Hearst tool, the mighty Jaws of Life. Countless hours spent practicing in a local auto junkyard had taught the crew how to tear a mangled car apart in minutes, freeing the victims from the metallic death grip of their own cars. Mike knew that nothing made in Detroit, Germany, or Japan could withstand the thousands of pounds of life-saving pressure the Hearst tool generated. At any accident scene, the Jaws would save lives, if there was any life left to save. The first speeding patrol cars were nearly there. The state trooper, approaching from the opposite side of the wreck, came on the air warning other rescue vehicles to slow down before they topped the hill. You'll be right on top of them. Back off before you hit the hill. I'm almost there. So far, all I can see is the semi. Oh, wait. There's something under the trailer. It... Jeez. Other cars arrived from three different sides. Mike saw the hill ahead and began to ease off the pedal. The deputy in front did the same, and they cautiously climbed their side. Mike noted the scent of burnt rubber and brake pads in the wind. No gasoline, thank God. Mike thought there might be hope for the kid yet. He'd seen no column of smoke either. Maybe there was still a chance. If the impact had been at an angle, maybe the car had ricocheted off. He'd seen it happen before. But when he topped the hill and looked down, he knew that no such luck had been with the children that day.
2: Just so you know, Steve is not finished with that story. He's taking a little break while I read something a little bit cheerier, which is The Mystery of Ghost Dancer Ranch by Patrick Craig. Um, I think I'll go ahead and read his preface also. Patrick says The writing of The Mystery of Ghost Dancer Ranch came about through an interesting set of circumstances. One night, I had a dream in which a favorite aunt who had always encouraged my writing appeared in my dream, and with that well-remembered stern look in her eye, pointed her finger at me and said, you write. The next morning, as I was reading the local paper, I noticed an ad in the classifieds, for sale, the Ghost Dancer Ranch. The whole story literally came to me in that moment, and I set about to write it the next day. That was 2007, and Ghost Dancer was my first book. I've been on the journey ever since. Chapter 1. The Old Ranch Hannah Roberts leaned on the sill and looked through the small panes of the second-story window in the old farmhouse. She frowned as she looked outside. Oh, pancakes! Another gray day! It wasn't exactly raining, but the fog had blown in again loaded with moisture from the cold Pacific. The cypress trees along the fence line dripped and looked mournful. The mist condensed on the window and ran down over the outer sill in errant rivulets to attack the peeling paint on the outside of the house. Grandpa had told her the ranch was well over 100 years old, and it really showed today. Hannah frowned and leaned her face on her hands as she watched the billowing fog stream by. She studied her reflection in the window. Her brown hair was pulled back from her face, showing her dark eyes, and the touch of red and gold in her bangs softened the strong brow and determined chin. I've been in Petaluma almost a week, and we haven't had one sunny day. Of all the places in the world, how did I end up in California for the summer? I miss my friends. Just then she heard her grandma call up the stairs. Boo! Breakfast is ready, honey. The thought of Grandma's cooking cheered her up a bit, and she liked that Grandma already called her Boo, like her folks did. It made her feel less homesick for Michigan. Hannah sighed, turned away from the window, and began to get dressed. Unfortunately, there was nothing she could do about her situation. Her dad had gotten an offer for a new job in Texas, so she was staying with her grandparents while her parents looked for a new home. Anna hated the thought of moving from Michigan. All her friends were there, and she had been getting ready for the riding competition at the stable where she took lessons when her mom gave her the news. She really missed her youth group at the church. Angry thoughts crowded into her mind. My whole summer is ruined. you think I could at least have a sunny day to make up for it. The only good thing she could think about being here was that her cousin, J.C. Masters, was coming for a two-week visit. I hope she's not stuck up. I could really use a friend right now. Pulling on her sweatshirt, she started down to the kitchen. As she went along the hallway, lined with faded pictures and family portraits, Boo realized that she actually did like the old house. The day her folks dropped her off, Grandpa had taken her for a tour of the ranch. She had a thing for old buildings and mysterious settings, and the old ranch house certainly had those. Ghost Dancer Ranch was set on a level spot halfway up a knoll in the middle of 1,600 acres of land between Petaluma and the coastal hills. The house was built out from a wall of stone that stood against the side of the knoll. Grandpa told her that there had been some sort of old Spanish structure there that burned down, leaving only the stone wall that had a big fireplace and chimney built into it. After great great grandfather Jameson bought the property, he found the wall and built the house using the wall as part of the structure. He updated the old stone fireplace with new brickwork and made it the centerpiece of the huge dining room. The winding road that led up to the knoll and ended in a circular driveway in front of the house reminded Boo of an old Southern mansion. Tall cypress trees on the back slope of the knoll acted as a break against the wind that seemed to blow in every afternoon through the gap in the western hills. The house had a somewhat ramshackle appearance because of all the rooms that had been added over the years, but in spite of that, it was still stately and beautiful. A wide porch swept around the front of the house and broad stairs ran up to the double-wide front door. Pillars held the old porch roof up, where it joined the house just below her bedroom window. Boo had already planned on sneaking out and climbing down the post to go exploring at night. The second story was a maze of rooms and the top of the house had a huge attic with a widow's walk looking out toward the ocean. To the west, the fields rose up into the foothills of the coastal range. There were forests of eucalyptus and pines and tall, bald outcrops of rocks. Grandpa said there were good riding trails, and she was anxious to saddle up the gray mare that Grandpa kept in the pasture. Northward, the land broke up into canyons winding crookedly up to the top of the ridge. Out of these came small streams that fed into the pond beyond the big pasture. On her first day at the ranch, her Grandpa took her out to the pond and showed her the diving board in the shed full of fishing gear. He looked up at the gray clouds and shrugged his shoulders. We'll have some fishing and swimming if we can get some sun. Altogether, the ranch was an interesting place. When they drove through the gate, Boo had noticed a little sign that said, Welcome to Ghost Rancher Ranch, and she'd made a mental note to ask Grandma about the name. She skipped the last two steps of the stairwell coming down from the back of the second story and landed in the kitchen. Grandma bustled about, frying some bacon and eggs. She smiled. Who were you talking to up there? Hannah sat down and grinned sheepishly. Just myself again, Grandma. Her grandmother laughed and patted her on the head. Don't worry, sweetie. JC will be here soon, so you'll have someone else to talk to. Now grab some milk. Eggs will be ready in a minute. Boo poured a big glass of fresh milk and took a long, satisfying drink. Grandma, why do they call this place Ghost Dancer Ranch? Her grandma paused and looked over from the stove. Well, boo, when the last of the great Indian ghost dancers came here in 1891 and hid out on the ranch. Ever since then, the locals always called it Ghost Dancer Ranch. Hannah felt her curious bone being tickled. What's a ghost dancer, grandma? Grandma slid the eggs onto Hannah's plate. Finish your breakfast and I'll tell you the story. After breakfast, Boo followed Grandma into the small room off the kitchen that served as Grandma's sewing room and office. Boo sat down as her grandmother rummaged around in the closet until she found an old box. She opened it and began to spread old newspaper clippings on her desk. Boo could read some of them. Ghost Dancer Rebellion comes to California, blazoned one headline. Grandma pointed to another. Ghost Dancer Red Bull captured in Yukaya." "'You may not know this,' she said, "'but our family on my dad's side is part Sioux Indian. "'My dad was half Sioux, so that makes you one-sixteenth Sioux. "'We are descended from the horse tribes of the Great Plains "'that fought the white soldiers in defense of their tribal homelands.' "'Now,' Boo was really interested. "'You mean like Crazy Horse and Sitting Bull "'and all the famous Indians we see on the History Channel?' "'Grandma nodded. "'Exactly.' The Sioux were fierce warriors, and even though they were outnumbered, they fought the army almost to a standstill. It wasn't until after the Battle of Little Bighorn that the United States government sent so many soldiers to the frontier that they finally overwhelmed the tribes. Grandma, isn't that where General Custer was killed? Boo Bear, you do know your history, but that battle wasn't the end of the story. After their defeat, almost all of the Indians were confined on reservations. Rations and supplies that had been guaranteed by treaty were poor quality, if they arrived at all. A lot of the government agents were crooks who stole from the tribes. Grandma paused for a moment and then went on. By 1890, a major revolt was brewing among the Indians. A Paiute Indian named Wovoka, who claimed that he was the Messiah come to prepare the Indians for their salvation, started a movement called the Ghost Dance. Tribes all over the country came to Nevada to meet with Vovoka and learn to dance the ghost dance. Vovoka claimed that the earth would soon perish and then come alive again, to be inherited by the Indians, including the dead, for an eternal existence free from suffering. Well, Grandma, that sounds a little like Christianity. Grandma nodded in agreement. Actually, Wovoka got a lot of his ideas from the Bible, but he added in some of his own. He was very strict about living at peace with everyone and being honest in all your dealings. He warned about following the ways of the whites, especially drinking alcohol, which he called the destroyer. His followers believed that if they exhausted themselves dancing the ghost dance, they could have a kind of death experience and catch a glimpse of the paradise to come, filled with their ancestors. Boo was fascinated by the story. But how did the ghost dance come to Petaluma? This is where our family comes in, honey. In early October of 1890, Kicking Bear, a great Sioux warrior, visited Chief Sitting Bull in Dakota. He told him that great numbers of Indians were followers of the new religion. But Kicking Bear lied to Sitting Bull. Instead of telling the chief about Wovoka's desire to live peacefully with all people, he tried to use the new religion to instigate a revolt against the whites. He got Sitting Bull to go on the warpath and showed him special ghost dance shirts, which he claimed would protect the Indians against the white man's bullets. When the American government heard about Sitting Bull's involvement, they immediately sent troops to arrest Sitting Bull and to bring the uprising to a close. The American troops, still angry about their defeat at the Little Bighorn, murdered Sitting Bull and instigated the terrible massacre at Wounded Knee. Some of the survivors fled to Nevada and California. One of them, a war chief named Red Bull, came to Petaluma with his wife and daughter, hoping that General Vallejo would protect him. But General Vallejo had died a year earlier and there seemed to be no help for them. As Providence would have it, they met a local rancher, John Jameson, who was sympathetic to Red Bull. He invited the chief to stay at his ranch. John Jameson, who was your great-great-grandfather, fell in love with the chief's daughter and married her in 1893. When the local authorities found out Red Bull was hiding out on the ranch they came to arrest him, Jameson warned Red Bull and he fled. The authorities didn't bother your great-great-grandmother, Jameson, since she was married to an influential local man. But Red Bull was captured in Ukiah and sent back to the Dakotas where he was hanged in 1895. Ever since then, they have called this place Ghost Dancer Ranch. They even say that on the night of the full moon, the ghost of old Red Bull still dances the ghost dance out in the caves on the back part of the ranch. But that's just ignorance gone to seed. As for how you got here, John Jameson and his wife had great-grandfather, Alton Jameson, My father, who was born in 1900. I was born in 1940, and I married your grandpa, Roberts, in 1965. Your dad, John Alton Roberts, was born in 1967. Then you came along in 1994, and now, here we are. Boo picked up one of the articles and then looked up at her grandmother. Well, Grandma, how come I never heard this story before? You know said Grandma. Your dad never seemed to be too interested in the history of the ranch. He didn't like farm life much, and as soon as he could, he left here to pursue a career in business. Your Aunt Sharon knew the story, but when she married Bob Masters and moved to Marin County, she didn't seem so interested in the ranch any more. You're the first one of my grandkids I've told it to. Grandma glanced at the clock above the desk. Oh, goodness, look at the time. I've got chores to do now, boo. Why don't you stay here and read some of these clippings? She grabbed an old sweater off the coat rack and left Boo alone in the office. Deep in the dark cave, two voices whispered, We must awake the others, for the time has come. Yes, but we must be careful, for the enemy will send his warriors to help The child. Yes, careful, careful, we must be very careful. Let the drum sound to awaken those who sleep, for we must be strong and walk in the strength of the dark one. Let us
0: dance. Now continuing The Blind Hill by Kent Ballard. Mike rolled his truck up beside the scene and pulled off in the ditch. Then he reached down and simply shut off the lights and siren. His crewmen jumped out and ran to the semi. The police officers were already doing what pitifully little they could for the parents. One look at the wreck told the whole story. The hearse tool was never even taken off the truck. They wouldn't be needing it today. Not even the jaws of life could have made a difference this time. What happened here was over within the wink of an eye. Four kids. Their little car had hit the semi squarely in the middle. Their roof, outside mirrors, window glass, everything had been sheared off at shoulder level. Mike had a sudden chill. He remembered another wreck where the emergency crews had to literally search for a missing human head. The bottom two-thirds of the car had carried on a few feet and jammed tightly under the trailer. That was the only merciful thing about the affair. The parents couldn't look inside the car to see... Uh, The parents. The father driving had almost hit the semi himself. The only thing that saved his car was seeing his son's brake lights, as if the boy's final act had been to warn his dad of the danger ahead. They skidded to a stop just a few feet behind the remnants of the kid's car. One man leaped out, ran to the wreck, and fainted dead away. When the police arrived, one of the women was deep in shock, unable to give her name and apparently unsure of where she was. The other mother had already screamed herself hoarse and was now emitting only strangled, croaking barks. She had already torn off her fingernails, clawing at the sides of the semi. Mike told me that the parents were the only ones loaded into the ambulance when it arrived. The hospital had already been notified that the kids wouldn't be needing their services. Mike wondered aloud why the shock of seeing all of their children slaughtered in front of their eyes didn't simply kill the parents then and there. I guess you never know how you would react to something like that. God, I don't ever want to find out. Mike was looking at a wall while he talked to me. Where was he? He seemed to be looking at things I couldn't see. I was grateful for my blindness to the scene. We got three of them into the ambulance without much trouble, he muttered. One of the guys, he was the father of the boy who was driving. He was a different matter. The father had jumped out of his vehicle and kicked the debris away from the rear of his boy's car. He single-handedly picked up the sheared-off roof and tossed it aside. When the police arrived, he was still pulling on the back bumper of his son's car and screaming the boy's name. He was literally trying to drag the car out from underneath the semi with his bare hands. It took four men to pull him away. Four big men. When they finally broke his grip and wrestled him into the ambulance, Well, I've never seen a human being, man, woman, or child, cry as hard as that man did. He just put his face in his hands and bawled. Good Lord, man. It tore us all up. Just tore us up. When the deputies and a couple of the ambulance crew rode to the hospital with the parents, after they left, there was still work to be done. A wrecker was summoned. A roadblock was arranged, and finally someone made the call they all dreaded. The county coroner was informed that he would be needed out on the Blind Hill on the South Highway again. The semi-driver was unhurt, at least physically, and a deputy offered him a ride into town. No charges were filed. The men felt pity for him, too. He couldn't stop crying, either. He refused to go to the hospital. He said he couldn't look at those parents again. They hadn't even been aware of him during their hysteria. It was as if he'd been invisible, All they could see was the mangled wreck under his truck. The wrecker arrived, and after a brief inspection, it was decided the only thing to do was drag the car back out the way it went in. The driver hitched up to the wreck, shifted into gear, and pulled. Nothing happened. The car was jammed so tightly under the semi that all he could do was spin his wheels. One of the firemen suggested letting the air out of the car's tires to lower it. The deputies and one of the firemen did just that, and the wrecker tried again. This time the car slowly backed out, grinding and screeching against the underside of the trailer. Strong men averted their eyes and began to take deep, slow breaths. They knew what they had to do. The ambulance crew had left them a supply of body bags. The car cleared the semi. The driver pulled it about ten feet away from the trailer. We were all standing back a little way, just in case something would snag, break off, and go flying. The driver stopped, and, well, we knew we'd have to look sooner or later. Mike stopped speaking to me for a moment, as if the wall projecting his mental image had suddenly shown him something he still couldn't believe. His voice became a flat, haunted monotone but there was wonder in his eyes. Then Mike looked directly at me. Do you know what happened? Unable to guess anything from his eerie expression, I simply said, No. Four kids sat up and brushed broken glass off themselves. The boy who had been driving stood up in his seat and jumped over the side of his car and through where the roof had been. He walked up to the first cop he saw and said, Hi! What took you guys so long? My jaw dropped. What? The boy saw there was no way to stop in time. As the semi loomed closer, he saw that his car might go under it. He screamed for the other kids to get down, to hit the floor. At the last second, he released the wheel and dove for the floorboards himself. There was a flash and a big bang, and they were all thumped hard but he had managed to slow them down enough where no bones were broken in the impact. They screamed and yelled for a while. It was later decided that no one could hear them due to the hysterical screaming of the parents. After a while, the air became stale inside the trapped passenger compartment, what was left of it, and they wisely stopped yelling. There was little panic at first, understandably, but what everyone said about the boy was correct. He was a good kid, had a good head on his shoulders. He calmed the rest of the youngsters, told them to hang on. They're coming, he assured them. They're coming. They won't leave us here. And they didn't. The cop stared at the kid in goggle-eyed disbelief, as if a grave had suddenly opened and the corpse started chatting with him. None of the men moved. None of them could believe what they were seeing. These kids were dead, and yet... There they were, rubbing their eyes and blinking at the bright sunlight. One by one, they climbed out of the shattered car under their own power, shaking beads of safety glass out of their hair and clothing. Then the spell broke, and the men at the scene remembered their training. The kids were swarmed from all sides by men who began giving them professional first aid examinations, men who were hugging and kissing them, good men who were weeping with joy. After a few minutes, the 17-year-old driver took a long look at his car. The reality of the thing was just beginning to hit him. Jeez, he moaned to a deputy, my dad's going to kill me. The deputy had just minutes earlier helped pry the grief-stricken father's hands from the boy's bumper. He had helped half-drag, half-carry the man into the ambulance. He'd tried unsuccessfully to shut his ears to the father's heart-rending cries. The deputy laid his hand on the boy's shoulder. No, son, your dad won't do that. Believe me. The kids were loaded into a police cruiser for the trip to the hospital. They were being taken to a reunion. Before they left, the young driver looked around at all the debris, the mangled car, the battered semi. It was all coming home for him and the other kids. They began to understand just how close they'd come and why their rescuers had looked so strangely at them. I don't... I can't... Uh... thanks, you guys. Only then did the boy realize that he and the others had been given up for dead. He paled but managed to shake the hands of every man present before getting into the cruiser. A deputy radioed the hospital and asked for the officer who rode with the parents into town. The officer came on the air and asked what he could do. The deputy at the wreck scene looked at the cruiser pulling away with four healthy kids in it. You're not going to believe this, but. And a minute later, the officer burst into the emergency room where the heartbroken parents were huddled. I've got some good news for you folks. That's a great true story, but kind of heavy. So let's end on a lighter note. A few quotes, this one by Irma Bombeck. Never lend your car to anyone to whom you have given birth. From Tommy Lasorda, baseball is like driving. It's the one who gets home safely that counts. The best way to keep children at home is to make the home atmosphere pleasant and let the air out of the tires. That's Dorothy Parker. A tree never hits an automobile except in self-defense. That's an American proverb. The best substitute for experience is being 16. Raymond Duncan. Never drive faster than your guardian angel can fly. That's author unknown. And from Dudley Moore, the best car safety device is a rearview mirror with a cop in it. Well, that's enough of that. Must be time to go.
2: Thanks for listening. Until next time, happy reading.
1: Thank you for listening to Let Me Tell You a Story. Please email your comments, suggestions, and submissions to story at BeckyLyles.com. Steve and Becky like to hear your thoughts, and they encourage authors to send stories and other short prose and poetry for them to read on the podcast. You can learn more about Becky's books by visiting BeckyLyles.com or by searching for her books online. Her nonfiction titles can be found under the name Becky Lyles and her fiction under Rebecca Carey Lyles. All of her books are available in both print and ebook formats. Winds of Wyoming and Winds of Freedom are also offered in audio format online. That's all for now. Tune in next time to enjoy a fresh assortment of stories on Let Me Tell You a Story.